Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Flora. If you would like more information about our church, please visit www.fbcflora.org. Man, thank y'all so much. Wow, sweet, sweet, sweet time of worship this morning. Thank y'all. Thank you so much. I'm desperate for you, Lord. I'm lost without you. Those are good words to say. Good words to mean. Uh, thank you, church. You know, there are a lot of areas of our lives where obedience is necessary. Uh, a lot of areas of our lives where obedience is necessary. You know, look up and I'm, I see Dante Fontenot back there and I think military. I mean, and the absolute importance of obeying orders that come from superior officers and missions that have to be accomplished and following and obeying the orders that were handed down to accomplish missions. Uh, military folks, you know, traffic laws, you got to obey traffic laws whether you like them or not. You got to obey them. You're supposed to obey them anyway. Uh, you know, you got, you got rules and regulations when you're, when you're playing sports. Uh, you got your hunting license on your phone or in your pocket because you got to have that. And that's a law that, you know, the different seasons, make sure you're, you know, it's, we, we just, uh, you know, you go to the doctor, you obey the doctor's orders. Then he gives you a prescription. You go to the pharmacist, they give you the, the medications you need. Well, you got to follow, obey the instructions that are put on the pill bottles or the medicine bottles so to take care of. You know, there's reasons for obedience. It's, we just, it takes care, you know, obedience is for our good. It, it's for our safety. It's for our well-being. It's, it's, for the, uh, it's for the good of the people around us. You, you try not to drive like a crazy maniac because of the people around you. You know, you don't want to, hopefully, you know, you don't want to hurt folks around you or people that are riding in the vehicle with you or things like that. And, uh, we obey to keep peace in our families and in our communities and our nation and our world. And that's part of the problem that we see these days is that there's a lot of folks that don't want to obey. They don't want to obey the laws and the regulations and, and uh, the anarchists, you know, they want anarchy and, and you know, all the stuff that we see that's just, just, just crazy. So obedience, life is just full of obedience. And certainly when you think about the Christian life, the Christian life is a life of obedience. I mean, we, we preached a sermon series a few months ago on the Ten Commandments. I guess probably that's when we, you know, uh, that's when we think about obedience, we think about Ten Commandments. Obey the Ten Commandments, and yeah, that, that's, that's right, that's good. But the Christian life is more than just thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and things like that. Don't, but, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. But it's more than just the weight and the heaviness of obeying these rules and regulations just because we have to. Um, for, the, for the Christ follower, our obedience is a joyful obedience. It's not a drudgery. It, it's, it's, it's not this heavy-weighted obedience that just drags us down. We obey. We are free to obey. You know, uh, it's, not, it's not that you have to obey. It's that we get to obey. And, and when you start realizing all that Christ has done for us and all that he means to us and all that the Lord does for us and how he provides for us, the fact that you're even sitting here today is a reason to just go, God, thank you so much. I want to live for you. 
God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for God so loved the world. Like we sang, thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus. And so because of that, I just want to live for you, God. I want to live for you. I want to obey you. So we, our, our obedience as Christ followers is, is because of our love for Jesus and because of our gratitude for all he has done for us, all that he is doing for us right now, and all he's going to do for us. And that's, that's, that's what our obedience is all about. And listen, y'all, God honors our obedience. And he honors those who obey him. And he opens doors of opportunity, of service, and experiencing, experiencing him working in your lives in incredible ways when you just simply do what the old hymn says, and that is trust and obey. But there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But it's, it's just he honors that. Dr. Henry Blackaby said this. He said, one ordinary Christian, and that covers everybody in this room, Ain't no superstars in here. The only one who should be magnified is the Lord Jesus, not any of us. So we're all in that category. That defines all of us. One ordinary Christian in the hand of Almighty God can do anything that God commands. That's it. I'm just telling you, when we as ordinary Christians put our lives in the hands of Almighty God, and the way that we do that is through our obedience... Man, there's no limit to what God can do and what God will do through us. And that's why we were on our knees up here before the Lord this morning, just going, God, we just want to be in your hands. We just want to be used by you, God, as your, as, your, as your child, as the pastor of this church, as a brother in Christ to my brothers and sisters out here. I just want to be used by you. And that's what we're just crying out to the Lord. God, just use us. Well, the only way he's going to use us which means you and me individually and us corporately as a church is if we're obeying him and living in obedience. So it's just all about obedience. And so we're it's still in this sermon series. Why do we do that? And it, if you really would just, you could sum up this, this sermon series, why do we do that, with that one word. Why do we do that? Obedience. <laughs> okay, end of the sermon series. Let's go to the next one. I mean, really, that's, that's about the way it is. Why do we do that? Why do we baptize three people this morning? Why do we baptize more people? Uh, why did we baptize last week? Why are we going to baptize in the future? Because of obedience. That's why we keep saying to you, if you've never been baptized, if you've trusted Christ at some point in your life, prayed and asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, but you never took that next step, most important step of obedience, you need to do that. Because that's... What baptism is, we talked about that last week, it's just obedience. It's just saying, God, I just want to be obedient to you. Jesus, I'm just going to be obedient. And so it's the same way with the Lord's Supper that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper today and what it means for us as the church. And it is just all about obedience, just like baptism is and the other things that we'll talk about in this series as well. So the... the our lives as Christ followers, listen, y'all, listen. Our lives as Christ followers, if, if you walk out of here today, my prayer for you is that you walk out of here consumed with the desire to obey the Lord and live in obedience to Him. That you, what we just sang, would really be true, that you say, God, I am desperate for you and desperate to be obedient to you, whatever that means. And... It usually means some changes have got to come <laughs> when we start obeying. 
So, so, that's, so individually and as a corporate body of believers, we just ought to, well, just be consumed with the desire to obey the Lord. And specifically when we come to the Lord's Supper and think about that, it's a way for us to obey the Lord. And we'll see that right now. If you grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. So it's the, was that seven? Was that seven? Yeah, so this is the seven. Uh, never was good with math. But uh, seven, so 1 Corinthians, New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. So if you'll get your Bible, hope you, get, hope you have your Bible with you. If not, you can look on with somebody, or if you've got the Bible app on your phone, you can pull it up. Just please uh, silence your phone. But uh, you can do that, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 28. Stand up, please, and let's read this passage together. Paul is writing here, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. So help us now, Father, by the power of your Spirit to hear from you today and do what we're talking about, and that is to obey you for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks so much. You may be seated. All right, so the church, this 1 Corinthians, written to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth uh, was a, as Dr. Jamie Dew said Wednesday night, it was a jacked-up church, First, uh, the church at Corinth was a jacked up church it was messed up there was some stuff in that church um dr do i'll be honest with you, i learned something <laughs> that good i learned something uh wednesday night when dr do he was the, he's the president of new orleans seminary uh preached wednesday night and he was he was talking about first corinthians and that there were four letters written to i i thought there were only three i didn't realize there were four so i learned something wednesday night i knew there were three letters written to the uh, church at Corinth, and we only have two of them in the Bible. I didn't realize there was four, so it was kind of cool to learn that. So, but that, <laughs> that might tell you how messed up this church was, that Paul had to write them four different times and go, get it right, get it together, come on. But, because, I mean, just the, I don't know what was in the other two letters, but in the two we got in the New Testament, oh my goodness. I mean, every church has got its problems. Every church has its struggles. I mean, we're not immune to that. We're going through some struggles even now, and so we're not immune to stuff like that. But, man, <laughs> you, look at, you look at some of the stuff they were dealing with in Corinth, it's just like, oh, my goodness. I mean, they were just, they were so, there were so many things. They were, they, were, they were struggling with unity. One of the most important things that a church can have is unity. Do you hear me, church? We have to have unity. You know why? Not just so we'll all feel good and love each other. It's because the world is watching us. And there ain't no unity in the world, if you, in case you hadn't seen that. And so they're looking and saying, those folks talk about unity. Let me see if they can do it. Nope, they can't do it either. 
And it, it, it cancels out any opportunity that we have to preach a gospel of reconciliation to them when we can't even get along inside the church. Shame on us. Shame, shame, shame on us. If we disrupt the unity of the body of Christ, if I am a part of doing something that disrupts the unity of the body of Christ, I am in big trouble. And that's what's going on in Corinth. <laughs> they, had, they had groups in the church that said, we like him better than we like him. We're going to listen to him. Well, we want to listen to him. Well, good for y'all. We're listening to him. And we're better than y'all. No, we're better than y'all. Uh-uh, we're better than y'all. That's the kind of stuff they were doing. I like this leader better than that leader. I like Paul. Well, I like Apollos. Well, I like Jesus. I mean, that's, that's, how, they were, that's how they were acting in the church. Can you believe folks would act like that in the church? That's what they were doing. There was sexual immorality in this church. There's sexual immorality in every church. There's sexual immorality in this church. But there was sexual immorality in this church in a, in a way that just kind of makes you rich. I mean, it was just nasty. And the, the, the sad thing was it was out in the open and everybody was okay with it. Messed up, man. Leadership issues. Who's going to be in control? Who's calling the shots? Pride issues. Well, I'm more important than you are because I speak in tongues and you don't speak in tongues. Because they struggle with spiritual gift issues. You know, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a very spiritual person. And Just crazy stuff, man. And then this thing about the Lord's Supper. This was another area. They were just messing it up. And you think, well, that's not as bad as that other stuff. You hang on just a minute. I'll show you something. They were, they were, they were struggling with properly observing the Lord's Supper in a way that honored God. Here's how they would do it in the early church. And maybe it's something that we might need to think about doing. I'm, I'd be really okay with this. Before they observed the Lord's Supper, they would have a fellowship meal. They'd have dinner on the grounds. Amen. Can I get an amen right there? Dinner on the grounds. Chicken and dumpling. Chicken pot pie. Lemon ice box pie. Fried chicken. Uh, turnip grains. I mean, can I get an amen? That's what they were doing. That's what, and so they would do that, and then they would have the Lord's Supper. Well, the problem was that when they'd have that big meal, there were people that were just big. You know, again, I know you can't have a hard time believing this, but there were people that were gluttons. They would eat too much. Isn't that terrible? I mean, it's just horrible. Y'all real quiet, because y'all all guilty, just like I am. And I, that's, you never hear me preach a sermon on gluttony. Sorry, but anyway, uh, but they, I mean, people would, they'd, they'd eat too much. They would knock people out of the way. They wouldn't, let, they wouldn't, they would eat so much, they would eat so much that people in the back of the line or folks that really needed the food wouldn't have any food left because all the people that were out of control and concerned more about their needs than anybody else would eat all the food. And even worse than that, they would get drunk at that meal. They get drunk up in the church. We're supposed to be drunk in the church, but we're supposed to be drunk on the Holy Spirit. And they, but they would get drunk and then mess, and then they go in here and have the Lord's Supper. <laughs> I told you it was messed up. That's what was going on in this church. And they just didn't care about anybody else. They only cared about themselves and their needs and their wants. Can I tell you something? That is the definition of sin right there. When you're more concerned about your needs and your wants and what you think is right than anybody else, that's where you are. You're just like these folks right here. We're just like these people right here. 
Because that's what sin is. And so this is what's going on. So Paul took this opportunity as the apostle to come in and try to correct this behavior in the church. And that's what apostles do. That's what pastors do. We address issues that we see going on in the church. And have the authority to be able to do that. Now here's what Paul, here's where Paul's authority came from. He said in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I'm delivering to you. In other words, Paul said, I got this right from Jesus. He probably got it in some kind of divine dream or vision or something like that. But Jesus gave this to Paul and said, go give it to those people. And so this, that's what he did. He said, so y'all need to listen. I'm giving you what I have received from the Lord. And so he did. And so he, he had this authoritative reason for giving, and giving them this instruction. And so then in verse 24, 25, he, uh, he just kind of laid it, laid it out what, where this came from. And so he went back and pulled up, said, y'all remember this is what Jesus did in the last meal, the Passover meal. You remember right before Jesus went to the cross, the Last Supper, you see the picture that, didn't Da Vinci paint that picture? Leonardo Da Vinci painted the, old, the picture of the Lord's Supper the Last Supper, and so that's, you know, they're in the upper room right before Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he got arrested, right before he went to the cross, right before he died, right before he went into the tomb, and then before he was resurrected. So there, he said, so you remember, this is what, and so he went back and he said, you remember, this is what Jesus said about the bread, this is my body. And so he said, that's what Jesus said. He said, this is what he said about the cup, this is the cup, in the new covenant, in my blood. And so he just reminded them, this is what Jesus taught us about this, and then in verse 26, he gives them the underlying reason why they were to keep doing this, because every time you do this, church, every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Now, I'm looking, for, I'm looking forward to him coming again. I'm ready right now. If he, if he would come before I'd finish this next sentence, that'd be all right with me. All right, so that's... that's so every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And then he moves in verse 27 and 28 and gets back to their problem in the church with this. That people were coming, verse 27, coming to the, 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 the table, eating the bread, drinking the cup, in an unworthy manner. We better find out what that means. Coming in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? Because those were the folks that were causing the problems. If you come to the table in an unworthy manner, it means that you come and you participate in it. You take the Lord's Supper without ever giving two thoughts to how serious this really is. You just come in flippantly. You just come in ca uh, casually, just kind of going through the motions. I know you never do that when you come in church, but some folks do. And they just kind of come in and go through the motions. They're not really thinking about how serious this really is. He says, if you do that, you come in an unworthy manner. It also means people who come in and take the Lord's Supper when they have unconfessed, unrepented, uh, unrepentant sin in their hearts. I mean, they've been out there, they've got secret sins that they're giving into, and they're not confessing them, and they're not repenting of them, and they're, they're doing this over here, but they're not confessing that sin to the Lord and repenting of that sin. They just, and, and then they just kind of, they, they, they just come right on into the table and don't confess their sin to the Lord, don't, conf, don't repent of their sin. They just take it, and it's like, this ain't no big deal. I mean, everybody else is sinning, so why do I have to worry about my sin? 
and you do it like that and man you're just coming in a very very un, un, uh, unworthy manner and it means that you come and you participate in the observance of the Lord's Supper but you're not really committed to following the call of Christ on your life you just do it because in two weeks on the 29th we will take the Lord's Supper in here okay well that, you know when I come to church that day that's what we'll do but you, you take it, but you're not really serious about when you walk out of here really fulfilling the call of Christ in your life. And that's, that's, that's doing this. That's taking it in an unworthy manner. And that is such serious business. Come on, John, man, that ain't a big deal. I mean, we're just taking a little bread and taking a little juice. And what's the big deal? Well, I, let's, let's just take a look at how big a deal it is. Keep going. Verse 28, let a person examine himself. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, without thinking about this thing, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, that is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. <laughs> That's pretty serious. That Paul said to take this in an unworthy manner, you place yourself and you run the risk of the hand of the discipline of God coming down on your life in a strong way. That God would discipline you because you're just kind of being flippant and nonchalant about this thing. People died because of that. God's discipline ain't nothing to play around with. I'm going to preach on that in February, by the way. So this is serious, y'all. And so as Christ followers, the application as Christ followers, we should live in a manner worthy to receive the Lord's Supper. That does not mean to live in a manner where you're perfect, because that ain't going to happen. But it means to live in a manner where you understand the seriousness of this, where you're confessing your sin and repenting of your sin, where you're committed to the call of Christ on your life to, to live as a follower of His. That's what it means, and that you're willing to live your life that way. That's, 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 that's what this thing is all about. So see, it's more than just coming in here and taking a little uh, piece of bread and a, and a little bit of juice and just kind of going through the motions. It means that you're committed to the Christ who, who did this for you, did what for you. Well, that's why we observe the Lord's Supper. Three reasons. I've got to give them to you quick. Number one, to remind us of the price that was paid for us. That's why, that's why we do this thing. That's why two weeks from today, Lord willing, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. To remind us of the price that has been paid for us. The, the price for the forgiveness of sins has always been the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So it's always required blood to be shed, all the way back to the Old Testament. You know, all of those Old Testament sacrifices, God instituted that sacrificial system to provide, listen to this word, to provide temporary forgiveness for the sins of the people. Temporary. That's why they had to keep sacrificing. Keep on sacrificing. Keep on sacrificing. More, more animals being sacrificed. More animals being because it was temporary. But every one of those lambs that was sacrificed back in the Old Testament pointed toward one who would be the ultimate sacrifice in His name is Jesus. Amen? It, they all pointed to Him who would come and would be the once for all sacrifice for us. And His blood paid the permanent, complete price 
for the forgiveness of our sins. And so when he died on the cross and when he screamed out and when he cried out, it is finished, he may not have screamed it out. In fact, I'm not sure he could have except for the fact that maybe God gave him one last little burst of strength. I think it probably was just a, 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 an agonized whisper because of some study that I did this week. But when he said it is finished, he was saying it has been paid in full. It's done. Their forgiveness is now complete. The price has been paid. Second reason we observe the Lord's Supper is to remind us of the pain that was endured for us. The price that was paid for us and the pain that was endured for us. Every aspect of the arrest, the abuse at the hands of the Roman soldiers and the crucifixion, every aspect of that event that happened after the Last Supper in the upper room, every event that happened after that was an excruciatingly, horrendously painful experience. I think in our day and age that we're so video-driven and we're so media-driven where there's cameras everywhere and where you can turn on your TV or turn on your phone, get on your phone or your computer or whatever, and, and just in an instant you can watch people getting killed anywhere, whereas whether it's crime, whether it's wars, you can pe see people getting killed all over the see, see people getting beat down, see people getting uh, robbed and murdered and, and, and uh, assaulted and just, just everywhere. And, and, and I think because of that, and, and then not, not to mention what Hollywood does and the movies that we watch and, and all of that kind of stuff and the, the series of, of shows that we watch, they're just all filled with violence and blood and gore and all that stuff. And so we just get real, I think we just get real numb to it and real desensitized to it. And so then when we talk about the pain that Jesus suffered and stuff like that, it's not that big a deal to us because we see all this stuff. Well, let me try to remind you a little bit and I will not do it justice because of time and just because I can't do it justice. Reminds you of the pain that he endured for you and me. It started in the Garden of Eden, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. It actually did start in the Garden of Eden when God said, there's one going to come, going to crush your head. He told the serpent that. But the pain started in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus walked out of that upper room after he finished having that last supper with his disciples, went to the Garden of Gethsemane, started praying so hard, so intensely. The stress was so strong. The, ang the anxiety was so powerful. The, the, the weight of what was about to happen was so overwhelming that he began to sweat drops of blood. The blood vessels beneath the surface of his skin ruptured in an actual rare but actual medical condition called hematidrosis, where the blood vessels underneath the surface of his skin ruptured and blood began to seep out of the pores of his skin. So the blood started being shed in the Garden of Gethsemane. But we're just getting started. So the guys show up in the Garden to arrest him. And according to the scripture, the first punch was thrown in Luke twenty-two sixty-three. Now it might have been before that, but that's the first one that I could find in scripture. That the first punch was thrown in Luke twenty-two sixty-three. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. So the beat down started, and the punches started flying. And he never punched back like you and I would. Never swung back as they began to pummel him and pound him with their fists. And then the spit started too. 
That wasn't physical pain, just the humiliation of people spitting in his face. And that started too. More punches, more spit. Matthew 26, 67, Mark 14, 65. As they just started beating the dog out of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we ain't done yet. So the rest happened. They had the mock trial and all this kind of stuff. And they said, okay, let's scourge him. Let's flog him. I went and pulled up online. I found a, a physician's description of the physical torment and agony that Jesus went through. I've read this before. I wanted to find it again. I wanted to read it to you today, but it's three pages of the physical agony and torment and torture that Jesus went through for you and me. It's three pages. It take me about 15 minutes to do. I started reading in my office out loud and time myself, and I got to the bottom of the first page, and I was already like at six minutes. I said, I ain't going to have time to do that because it's already 11.59, so we've got to get out of here. But the scourging started. The flogging started. I will tell you what this guy said. The first, the first blows, most of you know this, but they, they used a, the, the Romans... The Romans were, they perfected the art of the scourging. And, and they would, uh, they used a cat of nine tails, this whip, that on the ends of the whip, there's a short whip, but on the ends of it, uh, they would tie uh, pieces of bone or rocks or stones or glass so that when they would swing it, when they'd hit him, it would dig in. And, and, and it said that like the first blows didn't break the skin. They just started bruising. Just deep, deep, deep bruises. The guy described it as a butcher would tenderize a piece of meat. That's what started happening. But then he said this. It produced deep, large, painful bruises, intense pain. And then the skin was broken and the lacerations happened. The muscles started getting ripped away. Uh, bones would be exposed. But the Romans knew exactly when to stop. When they were about to kill the guy, they would stop. And they were very, very uh, 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 exact in their torture because they didn't want to puncture a, uh, puncture a lung because they were going so deep with the, the, the whip they could actually get to the lung from the back. And they didn't want to puncture the lung and kill the guy because they wanted him to keep suffering as long as they could. During this incredible, I'm going to quote a few things. During this incredible agony, the pain would be overwhelming, causing Jesus to slip in and out of consciousness. And then they, uh, after they finished up, about 600, do you hear me? About 600 Roman soldiers gathered up. There's about 200, 250 people in here. So over twice as many people are in this room, Jesus would be in the middle of 600 Roman soldiers who started taking their turns with him. You know, they mocked him. They stripped all his clothes off. He's, you know, he's humiliated. Clothes ripped off of him. So they put that robe on him, probably made out of some real coarse camel hair, mohair kind of stuff that would stick to the wounds all over his body, and then they'd rip it off. And they'd throw it back on him, and then they'd rip it off. Boy, that's fun. Throw it on him and rip it off. Put the crown of thorns on him. Pounding that, you know, not just little thorns like on a rose bush, but like on a bodock tree or something like those, those kinds of thorns. The guy said here about the, the, the robe thing, he said, uh, this, this pain could have been the most excruciating of all. But then they took him to the cross, and you know what happened there on the cross, and 
drove the nails there like railroad spike sized nails through his wrist put his feet on top of each other and put them on a little platform and drove one right down through the middle of his feet through the soles of his feet into the wood and his legs would be his legs would be bent his arms would be pulled back and the only way he could breathe because at that point he'd lost so much blood so much fluids that he was in shock the only way he could breathe was to pull himself up on those on those nails pull himself up on those nails and push down on that nail on his feet and push himself up rubbing his back on the cross by the way as he's doing this because again he's all his clothes are gone and he's hanging up there like that and words like excruciating pain uh, the pain would have been indescribable extreme searing excruciating pain deep relentless throbbing pain dreadful crushing pain and then he and then this then there came the moment of death this guy said this he said Jesus listen Jesus I gotta hurry some of you medical people will know this, but most of us lay people don't understand this. Jesus did not die from suffocation as most victims of crucifixion did. Rather, he had cardiac rupture or cardiorespiratory failure associated with hypovolemia, hyperemia, and an altered coagulable state. Also, friable, non-infective thrombotic vegetations could have formed on the aortic or mitral valve, aggravated by his state of exhaustion and the severity of the scourging. Jesus died of heart failure this is evidenced by the presence of water which is caused by the shock and constriction of the cardiac tissues being filled by fluid from the pericardium our Lord died from a broken heart caused by our sin so I texted a doctor friend of mine I went to high school with and I sent him that paragraph and I said put that in layman's terms for me he responded back and he said yes his heart literally burst his heart literally burst open for us. Due to his extreme lack of fluids and loss of blood, he was dehydrated and in shock. In a, in a desperate effort to survive, his body's clotting system went into overdrive and formed too many clots on too many vital organs. At some point, his body ran out of clotting factors and he then continued to freely bleed to death. It was a horrible, awful, slow, painful way to die. So two weeks from now, when you come to the Lord's table, you remember that. Why do we do this? Remember the price that was paid, remember the pain that was endured, and to remember His purpose for our lives. And what is His purpose? His purpose is that we worship Him. We are created to be worshipers. And his purpose is that we worship the God who would send his one and only son to come pay the price for our sins. To worship him. To fix our eyes on him. To do something about the failures in our lives, those sins, and realize that this blood, this body that was broken, this blood that was shed for us, paid for all of those sins. That's what our purpose is, is to understand that and to live our lives in gratitude for what He did for us on the cross. And then one more thing, because He, did, he came off the cross, dead, went into the grave, but didn't stay in the grave, hallelujah, He's alive today. But because of His resurrection, you and I now have that same resurrection power in our lives to do something about the failures that are in our lives that we can fix. In other words, what I'm saying to you 
is that sometimes we fail, we sin, and we can't do anything about the consequences. Because there's always going to be consequences. And those consequences are going to just keep rippling out. Keep ri- because of your sin. Because of you. Don't be looking at anybody else. I'm talking about your sin. I'm talking about my sin. And those consequences just keep rippling out. Well, I didn't mean for that to happen. Sorry, bro. Sorry, sister. You didn't think about that, did you? But because we have the resurrection power in our lives, we can't go out there and fix everything that is, that is messed up now as the result of our sin. But the ones that we can fix, that person that you've been out of fellowship with for years and years and years, and they still live in this town, and you still see them all the time, and you're under conviction right now that you need to make a phone call this afternoon, but you still don't want to do it. Your purpose is to reconcile as best as you can. Your purpose is to fix the ones that you can fix. And the ones that you can't fix, you just got to pray that God's going to give that person grace and mercy to make it through whatever they're in because of your sin and my sin. Yeah, that's what our sin does. That's why Jesus' death on the cross was so painful and so horrendous and such agony. It's because sin is horrible. But our purpose is to live for him and to fix the ones that we can fix. <laughs> to fix the ones that we can fix. I remember one time I got to tell this, and I go, oh, man. I remember one time, I was youth minister at First Baptist Church in Brookhaven. Great youth ministry there. Incredible time of youth ministry there. And for some stupid reason, at some point in my life, I decided I was going to start gossiping about one of my youth workers, some of the most active people in my youth ministry. And I started running my mouth. Stupid, 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 stupid. Started running my mouth. And God just said, John, you got to go fix that. Because I knew who I had talked about. And there they were, and I saw them every Sunday. So I called, I called the husbands up because I had talked about their wives. Both of them very active in our youth ministry. I, I talked about their wives, so I called their husbands up. I went to one of them's office, and I walked in. I said, man, i got to tell you something. i got to confess something to you. i got to confess my sin to you. I have been gossiping about your wife, and I am so, so, so sorry. You know what he did not do? He didn't get up from behind his desk and come over there and punch me. He didn't kick me out and say, I never want to see you again. He said, John, man, I love you and you are forgiven. Now let's go. Went and did the same thing with the other husband. Same exact response from him. Brother, I love you. I love you. You are forgiven. And then I talked to their wives and there was this incredible reconciliation that happened. It was beautiful. It was awesome. And to this day, well, one of the husbands has passed away now. But to this day, I am so close with those other folks. I have a deep, deep, deep relationship with them. Because at some point, and I don't always do that, but at some point I did the right thing and I fixed it because I could fix that one. I could fix that one. There's a lot of other stuff that I've done, stupid stuff that I couldn't fix. I could fix that one. You got one you can fix too, don't you? Right now. You got one you can fix. 
And Jesus died on the cross, went into the grave, rose from the grave to give you the power to confess it, repent of it, and fix it. And he will be glorified. Let's pray. So Lord, help us, God, to do what you have called us to do and to live for you and to respond in obedience, even right now during this invitation, if we need to. God, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.